And thank you, Kent and Barbara, for our music tonight. Those of you joining us on live stream, welcome. It's uh, Father's Day, but Father's Day evening as we gather again tonight for our service. Uh, I want you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. I know that on your outline you don't have these references, so you'll just have to listen and turn to them. And I want to read this passage to you and speak to you tonight on the family. Over three weeks, I have uh, done just a, a short uh, group of messages. The first one on people, that is, who we are before our Creator, before God. The second message was on marriage and why God instituted marriage. But this third one is on the family. As we uh, have families, we live in families and uh we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul has, it's kind of a parallel passage to Ephesians. In our service this morning, we uh, were in Ephesians chapter 6, and, and uh, there's some parallel thoughts here. But I like this passage because there's two bookends, verse 17 and verse 23, very similar verses, and it's kind of like bookends between the books that lie in between. So verse 17 begins with, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now if you skip all the way down to verse 23, notice, Whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men. Uh, and in between, you have a verse to wives, a verse to husbands, a verse to children, fathers, and then also to servants. So those are the books between the two bookends. Verse 18 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as fitting in the Lord. Verse 19, Husbands, love your wives, do not be bitter toward them. Verse 20, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Verse 21, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And then to servants, verse 22, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And so it gives us an outline, as many passages do in the Scripture, about the family. Well, these three messages that I brought, I think, are important, the reason I've done it. One is on human beings because the very, we as human beings are under attack, believe it or not, by human beings. Uh, this transgender movement that we have going on around the world and in this country is really an affront, if not blasphemy, before God who made us this way, made us in His image, made us male and female, and then here we are saying to God, you made a big mistake when you did this. And I don't think God takes that very easily. Marriage is under attack. Now that same-sex marriage is legal in all 50 states, not only in this country, around the world, and sometimes no marriage, of course, uh, which people choose to do. So the, the marriage is under attack, and so is the family. Uh, we, we have group parenting now, if you haven't noticed, where maybe two or three dads or three or four uh, moms will uh, adopt or raise kids on their own. You know, it's, it's incredible what we think about family. And parents taking their kids to drag queen our reading, you know, in the library or even in our schools now, and uh, teaching sex education, 
uh, to first graders and second graders and, and so forth. So the family is under attack. We, we as God's people need to understand that and uh, need to know what we do. Now, this morning, speaking to fathers from Ephesians chapter 6, I'm thinking, boy, uh, a lot of what I said this morning I'd like to say tonight. I hope that I can make it a little more diverse than that. Do you remember that Jesus was asked uh, when he walked on this earth about divorce and remarriage and about uh, what he thought about those things? But his answer was this. In Matthew 19, 4 through 6, he answered them and said, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Now, folks, that's a pretty startling statement. When you think, okay, you don't want to believe what Moses wrote, what Moses said that God did. Here's the Son of God himself on the earth saying with his own words, God made you male or female. You know, for us to say, I don't care what God said and I don't care what Jesus said, uh, I don't believe any of that is, is, a, is a pretty strong statement of unbelief, if you ask me. Then he said, he said, for this cause, and he's quoting now in Genesis, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate or put asunder. So in these words, you, you have the Son of God saying we're made in, as male and female, individually, in God's image, whether you are male or female, uh, you are in the image of God. Then he said a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. Well, that has to do with marriage. That's when you decide that you're not going to live under your parents' roof anymore. You're going to live with that person uh, that husband or that wife, and so you leave and you start a home on your own. By the way, th this was all being said by God in the Garden of Eden before sin ever came into the, into the universe of the world, before Satan fell, before Adam and Eve sinned. This is God establishing the family in the Garden of Eden in a perfect uh, world, in a perfect environment. So you, they leave and cleave, and then the two shall be one flesh because the two of you will reproduce, and the two of you will have children, and that is a family. So there will be father and mother. And by the way, a man will be joined to the wife. They'll, he'll leave a father and a mother. Look at that, families in the Garden of Eden before, uh, before sin ever enters. And so we have that testimony of the Lord himself about what a family is. Let me remind you again, in God's creation, he created angels, but they don't marry, do they? Jesus told us that they don't marry, they don't have families. As uh, some people put it, they were created a company, not a race. In other words, they never reproduce. And by the way, there, there have never been more angels created, and there will never be fewer angels than were created. What did happen to them is that they sinned, and so a third of them, it seems a third, uh, rebelled with Lucifer, and so you have fallen angels, and then the others that did not sin remained with God, and you have good angels. But there's just as many now as there was on the day that they were created, and uh, they will spend eternity, uh, uh, fallen angels in hell, it's created for them, uh, they will be there forever, and the good angels in heaven forever. But we're not angels. We marry. 
We're different than that. God created animals. And he did make them male and female, didn't he? So the animals are made that way. And Noah had the command to, uh, to uh, take a, a male and a female uh, with him into the ark. And so they don't, animals uh, are male and female, but they don't necessarily marry, do they? Now they mate. I mean, God made them to mate, male and female, to fill the earth with, uh, you know, the animals and so forth. And that's good. And that's what they do. But uh, I've never held a, uh, a wedding for uh, cats or dogs or, uh, you know, anything like that uh, because they don't pay too well for, you know, doing marriages. So, so you know, we don't, do, we don't do weddings and animals don't care about those kinds of things. But human beings, uh, not only are God's creatures also, but we are made in his image and we're made male and female, as I said. And we do marry. And as I have said in these messages before, the marriage is a covenant type of marriage. Though we do it legally with whatever civil authorities we're supposed to follow, we do that. But basically, marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman and God. And so you make those, you make those vows not only to one another, but you make them before God. Uh, so it's kind of a triangle-shaped uh, uh, covenant that we make. And then we reproduce within marriage. At least that's, that's God's instruction to us. Of course, human beings can reproduce like animals do, and some people live like that. But uh, God's uh, plan and his design is that we would reproduce within a family where there's been marriage so that those children grow up in that environment, in a family-type environment. And so the family becomes the first divine institution that God made. Uh, before he called Israel, uh, before he made the church, before he instituted human government, there was the family. So let me uh, show, go over with you three things that you have in your outline there. And uh, we'll stay in Colossians 3 here for a minute. And let me talk about the, the definition. Then what is a family? And I think you have heard it in our day, right? Uh, one man, one woman uh, married together makes up a family. And that's exact, exactly what Jesus said. That's exactly what Moses uh, wrote to us in Genesis that God did. Let me take it in the order of the text. I think I put the husband first on your outline. But uh, in verse 18, we have the wife first. So let me just take it that way, the way uh, Paul has it here in, in Colossians. Wives, submit to your own husbands. That word submit uh, it means to rank under. You've probably heard this before. It's a military type of term. It means that someone is above you uh, that has authority, and you rank yourself under that person and do what they, they command or want. Now, it, just as in a military service, that doesn't mean you're less talented. It doesn't mean that He's a better shot than you are. It just means that's the rank, and that's where you find yourself. So all soldiers can be equally talented, and even the lower-ranked soldiers much more talented than those who give orders. But if you don't, you know, it's like having a team. If, if you don't play together and you don't play by the rules, you won't go very far. The same with same in, in the military. So uh, he says here, because it is fitting in the Lord, it is proper the, uh, we learned this morning that, that it is righteous. It's the right thing to do, to do this kind of thing. 
Now, I've talked already in this series about uh, when, when Adam saw Eve the first time, and God says, I'm going to make a helper comparable to you, a help meet. Remember that expression? A helper comparable means that God made the man to do a certain thing and be a certain kind of person, and then he said, none of the animals are what you need, so I'll make a woman from you, and she will be exactly what you need, and you will be what she needs. And so, like it or not, whether we want to admit it or not, God made us to be male and female so that we fit together in families and supply exactly what we do. And human beings, folks, are most fulfilled when they do the way God created them to be. When you're like that and you like that position and you do it well, you're happy and you live long on the earth. And this is the way God intended it to be. We call that being a helper compliment uh, to him. And so I've used the word complementary complementarity or complementary is the idea that you are a complement to one another. You, you help each other. You fit exactly with each other. You complement that person. That other person is not whole without you. And all of us who are married and, and uh, have lived with a husband or wife, we know that what that means is that other person makes me complete. That other person makes me whole. I, I, I wouldn't be what I am without that other person. So we're, we're complementing one another. I gave you Kevin DeYoung's illustration about the basketballs and the footballs. Remember that? That you really can't play basketball with a football. That is an American football. You can try to dribble it down the floor, but it isn't going to work. And you can't play football with a basketball because you can't throw it and pass it and, and so forth. But if you play basketball with a basketball and football with a football, it works very well. And so the fact is a woman is created uh, to be what God wants a woman to be. And when she plays that, it works very well. And the man, when he does what God created him to do, it works very well. So the, the wife uh, is to submit to her own husband, and the husband, verse 19, is to love his wife. And uh, it's interesting, isn't it? By the way, men, love can be commanded. You know, I don't know how many people I've talked to over my years of ministry where somebody says, you know, well, I just don't love her. Or she might say, I don't love him. And it's interesting to me that love can be commanded by God. And can God, God can tell us, you love that person. And if that, if that is true, it's true for a husband too, isn't it? And true for a wife as well. Now, there's been a little argument among us as, as believers about, is there a double submission here? In other words, does the wife submit to the husband and does the husband submit to the wife by loving her? In other words, kind of a double submission. And you know what I found is kind of interesting. The older writers will speak that way. You remember H.A. Ironside, whom I still love to read, but he's 100 years old now. Well, I mean, he's gone. He wrote 100 years ago. And uh, he wrote this way, and he would point out in passages like this, see, the wife submits in her way, and then the husband submits in his way. Now, newer writers now kind of bristle at that. 
because uh, we have this problem, you know, of uh, uh, men taking the women's place at home and the woman going to work and taking the man's place, and so they think it feeds that. But here's the way I look at it. It is a double submission, but not to each other, but to God. When the wife submits to God, then she will submit to her husband because that's what God wants of her. And when the husband submits to God, he will love his wife because that's what God wants for him. So it ends up with that complementarity again, that, that mutual uh, respect and taking our place before God. But we do it, and if you'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 11 again, you'll find that that's the case that uh, we submit to God, and in doing that, we take this place in the home. So the husband has a headship. I've talked about that already. Let me remind you, Ephesians 5.23 in the, in the parallel passage, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. That word kaphale for head means uh, that uh, someone is put over. Is, is Christ the head of our church? Absolutely. So in that sense, is the husband the head of the home? Absolutely. That's the way it is. Is God the Father the head of Christ according to 1 Corinthians 11? Yes, he is. And so these relationships were to take because that's God's will. So in 1 Corinthians 11:3, I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. The head of Christ is God. And so if the Godhead itself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, can put themselves in ranks as far as their responsibilities are concerned, so can we. So can the wife and the husband. We talk about the husband as being the breadwinner, right? Well, that, that in a way, that, that's our term for it. But we go back to, to the Garden of Eden and what was Adam doing? Adam was the gardener. And Adam was the tiller of the ground, and he was the one that did this, and he was the one that, that provided for Eve and later for the children too by working with his hands in the ground. Even after the curse, still he's a worker in the ground. And uh, sometimes uh, in the Old Testament, he's considered like the priest of a family. I mean, if the family lives far away, can't always come where the temple is or has no access to that, it's the father who leads in worship. It's the Father who leads in their faith and teaches from the Scripture and so forth. And so this headship carries a lot of responsibilities with it. Maybe that's why we have a problem these days of men deserting and opting out and not wanting to raise their own children or not wanting to be in a marriage because being the head in a home is hard work and it's responsibility and uh, we shouldn't shirk it. So we have here wife or mother, we have husband or father, and then thirdly, we have children again, and we looked at Ephesians uh, this morning, but children obey, and that same word I defined this morning as to hear under, to hear under means I'm under my parents, I'm under my father, and so I will listen, I will hear what he has to say, and I will do it in all things, it says here, and I'll do it because it's pleasing to the Lord. So I hope that uh, you were raised that way. I hope that you had that knowledge in growing up in your home 
that uh, you respected your parents, you listened to what they said, and you learned from them, and God was pleased with that. I think there are two critical things these days that children desperately need, and uh, we are losing them quickly because we're losing the family. And one is obeying parents. Uh, I, I think children are being taught specifically not to do that. And so we have to be very careful as Christian parents uh, to, to teach our children that. And if you're grandparents, as, as I am, to help our children teach their children that. You know what I find that there's, there are lists, you know, in the New Testament of terrible sins in the world. And it, and it takes three or four verses to list all of those terrible sins from, from fornication, adultery, to murder, to homosexuality, and all of those terrible sins. And you know what I find in those lists? Listen, in Romans 1, and, and there are five verses, but I'll just quote verse 30 at the end of Romans 1, after a number of other things. Backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. And you're thinking to yourself, that is in that list? Disobedient to parents. Or 2 Timothy chapter 3, this know also, in the last days, perilous times shall come, men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, <laughs> unthankful, unholy, and it goes on with the, the whole list. You find disobedient disobedience to parents in these lists of terrible sins before God. God takes this very seriously. And our children are in a, in a culture, in a time uh, when it's not even cool to obey your parents. And there's all of this social pressure on social medias and other uh, ways in which they are pressured not to do this. So it's a challenge. It's a challenge to parents. It's a challenge to grandparents. It's a challenge to kids. But that's something we need desperately. And the second thing is to love the brethren. And I mean by that to love God's church. I'm convinced that whether in 1 John or in other places where the Bible tells us that we're to love the brethren, it means the family of God, and the family of God is the church. Not only the universal church of, of saved people, but the local churches where God's people are. And, uh, uh, you know, if, if a child grows up not obeying parents and not loving the church, that kid's headed for trouble. And, and so we need that specifically, and we need it in a great way. And it's not so much when you love the brethren, it's not so much, well, I love that one, but not that one. You know, I love that, that uh, brother or sister in Christ, but I don't like that one. I, I think what the Bible means by this is, do you love God's people? Are you a believer? And this, these, are the, these are your people. As someone said, how can you say, I love, I love you, Lord Jesus Christ, but I don't love your wife at all? I love you, but I don't like your bride. Because the church is the bride of Christ. Uh, you know, I can remember visiting uh, often, and in, in, uh, it's been my privilege to visit mission fields and, and be with missionaries. And I can recall sometimes, I remember in India, 
when the, the worship services were in pretty humble places, it might be a little home here or it, it looked like a little garage-type building down here, and I'd be walking with the missionaries down to this service, and you'd hear them singing. And it wasn't even in my language, but I knew the song they were singing. They're singing, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord or something like that. They are in those places. And you walk toward it and you're saying, those are my kind of people. You know, I can't speak their language. I don't know any of them, but I hear what they're doing, and that's where I want to be too. I think we need to have a love for God's people. So this first definition of the family is simply given to us throughout the Scriptures like this. Let me add one footnote here. Do you know it's Christianity that liberated women? You understand that, don't you? Whether in the Roman Empire, in the Greek world, Women were subjects to men and almost slaves to men. Christianity elevated women to a place of equality before God and a place of importance in the family uh, to where even Paul lists them first uh, in dealing with, with things about the family. And, and so wives were, were uh, elevated and liberated. And so, by the way, were children because children were just... Uh, material things that families owned. You could throw them out. You could do whatever you wanted to them. And so the value of children in their lives, and by the way, to us, from the womb to death, our children are, are uh, precious to us. And not only that, but slaves. You notice that there, there's a passage here to servants, verse 22, are slaves, doulos, douloi. These are slaves, and that was a slave world. But the slaves became believers in Christ. They sat next to Christians in church. They were brothers and sisters, elevated to that label. And by the way, eventually it's Christianity that ridded the world of slavery, first in England and then in America. We paid a huge price to do it, but we did it. And we ridded uh, the world of, of that in most places. Some places is still going on. So Christianity... Uh, as far as the family goes and the people associated with the family, has done more, of course, uh, for uh, humanity than any other organization in this world. So here's a definition. Let me talk a little bit about responsibility. And uh, uh, you have here, uh, I, I'm, you have in verse 21, again, that small verse there, kind of like in, we have in Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your children. Remember, Ephesians says, don't provoke your children to wrath. And here it says, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And, and so we are, remember, to nourish them and train them. Those two words I dealt with this morning, nourishing means like feeding. Just, just as you would feed your child so they can grow up, you're to nourish them in the faith. You're to teach them in the faith. And you're to train them, uh, that is, to train them uh, in the things of God and in the Word of God. We bring them up from the womb. And we of all people, as Christian people, believe life begins at conception. And uh, that is, at that moment, a soul has been passed on from mother and father and that was passed on to them from their mother and father and from their mother and father all the way back to Adam and Eve. And so the soul, the life, uh, is passed on through conception. And that can only happen, by the way, uh, with a man and a woman, and it always will. You can, you can 
make a uh, woman look like a man by surgically uh, mutilating her, and then she becomes pregnant, and you say, look, a man is pregnant. No, a woman is pregnant, and that's the only way that it will ever be. And so we protect that womb. We protect that life there. We protect it as a baby and a toddler. Uh, those little ones can't uh, uh, live on their own. They can't be on their own. Now through school years, right, as they grow up through the school years and we see what they're being taught and we see what's going on in the schools and we say we've got to protect our kids even there. My, my mother was a, a school teacher. My father was a a professor, my mother was a school teacher, and she taught in the public high school all the years that my four siblings and I, when we went through uh, school, uh, she was our English teacher. So she, I, had, I had my mother in class, and I had my dad in class at one time or another. But this was in the 1960s. All four of us went through high school in the 1960s when it just seemed like everything was falling apart. I'll tell you what, folks. I'd glad to go back to the 60s compared to what we have right now. But anyway, in, in the 60s, uh, things were pretty bad. Universities were being burned. There were riots all over the place, people being shot, uh, free sex, Woodstock, all of that kind of stuff going on. And uh, my mom taught a class in the public high school called the Bible as Literature. As long as you could teach it as literature, you could teach it. And it was always the biggest class in the school. Kids wanted to hear what the Bible said. My mom taught it. And uh, when my little brother Joe finally got through high school, mom said, I'm out of here. She said, I, I was here to protect you guys. And I stayed with it until my kids were all through, and then I had to leave. It's just too much. So we have to do that as parents, too. It's your job through these years as we raise them and bring them through. Uh, we have to stay involved, and we, we have to help them through these years. Secondly, it's our responsibility to win them to Christ. Let me remind you of, of how Paul addresses Timothy in the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 15, that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation, which is in Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 1, he had said, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and then in your mother, Eunice, and now I'm persuaded in thee also. What we have this beautiful picture of what? Generation by generation handing down the faith of Christ, from grandmother to mother and then to grandson. And so winning our children to Christ, I say, is our first evangelistic responsibility to win our own children. And I think I said this morning, I'll say it again tonight, I think that the family is God's number one unit for evangelism in this world. Now, preaching is and missions is, and we go into all the world and preach the gospel, but but moms and dads have the responsibility of leading their children to the Lord. I believe there's a, an age of accountability. I, I believe that there's a time when a child doesn't understand. And I also believe that if that child dies before that age of accountability, whether in the womb or, or as a toddler, uh, that that child goes to heaven. I think we have sufficient evidence in the Scripture about that. David's child died, and David said, I, uh, he can't come back to me, but I'll go to him. So uh, we understand th that, but there is a time when even that little one understands right from wrong. And it's been my experience 
in churches and with my own kids and seeing my grandkids and the, and the rest. But boy, they get to about that age five years old, sometimes a little before, often a little after. And they begin to say to mom and dad, they're in, they're in church and they're hearing lessons and they're reading Bible. They're, they're hearing the stories and the Holy Spirit is working on that little heart. And uh, they say to mom and dad, I want to be saved. And it's mom and dad's responsibility to lead them correctly to Christ, not rush it, not give them any magic formulas about just say this and everything will be fine, but to make sure that that little mind and heart really knows what they need to know and will accept Christ as Savior. So there's that age of accountability. There's the advantage of the Christian home. You realize, don't you, that that little one you're raising in your home has heard you pray since he could understand anything. They've been, if you'll start them out in the church nursery, uh, they will stay in church the rest of their lives. I believe that. I, I think one of the mistakes parents make is it's too hard to corral those little ones in church, so we'll start later, and they never start. But you make that little one be in the nursery and then that little one in the first class and then the second class and you know what that that kid will be in church the rest of his or her life because they learn that early and so they're they're hearing the the bible they're hearing stories they're watching hearing testimonies hearing sermons for whatever they can get out of them you know all of that kind of thing there's such an advantage to a christian child being brought up in a christian home and church and I love the, Lord, the words of Jesus when he said, Suffer little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. What did he mean by that? All little children go to heaven? They don't if they don't get saved, of course, that, after that age of accountability. But of such, what he meant is you have to have childlike faith to believe in Christ. You like the little child jumping off the side of the swimming pool into dad's arms, you know. Uh, he can't swim. He, he's afraid of the water, but dad's there, and he jumps off. Uh, childlike faith is what you have to have, and children are more focused on it than adults <laughs> of such. Uh, it, it, that little child is focusing on that. That's what they know. That's what they've heard. That They know that's what they want. And so they accept Christ as Savior. We need to help them do that. Uh, in uh, my book, I wrote about Spurgeon's story that he gave in one of his sermons where he's talking about seeing a picture of the brazen serpent in the Old Testament. And the, the serpents on the pole and the, ser the serpents are biting the people and they're dying all around. And so the instruction is you come and you look at this brazen serpent and you will live. Look and live. And uh, so he says there's a, there's a picture someone painted. I don't know where he was in one museum somewhere. And all of these people around the pole, just crowds of people trying to get close to the pole. And this mother has a little child. And you could see the, the red marks on the little baby's arm where it was bitten. And the, the mom lifts the child up like this and takes this little head and turns it toward the serpent so that that little infant will look at that serpent and live. And then Spurgeon says, listen to this, you parents. And he says, listen to this, you Sunday school teachers. Turn their little eyes to Jesus. He doesn't mean, of course, infants. He means little children so that they can look and live. And so we need to do that with our children, win them to Christ, and then send them out 
You remember Psalm 127? Our children are as arrows in the hands of a mighty man. So are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed. They will speak with the enemies in the gates. Children are like arrows. And you spend your whole life making that arrow. Uh, I could, you, did you ever hunt for arrowheads when you were a kid, you know, and we, we used to do this and we'd find those arrowheads and I'd look at those little things and I'd think to myself, how long did it take somebody to take another sharp instrument and start whacking away at that stone and getting it just right so that it's sharp and pointed and all the rest? How, how long did it take to do that? And then you think about the stick that they put it on and it had to be straight. They had to find the stick. They had to get it. How long does it take to make an arrow? And then what does he do? He's carrying it in the woods and he sees something he wants to shoot at. He puts that thing that he's worked a year on, puts it in his bow, draws it back, and it's gone. And it doesn't come back. And you hope it hits the target. Well, children... The psalmist says, are like that. We spend our whole lives, we spend 18 years making this kid, and then uh, all of a sudden, they're gone. They leave home, and our question is, did they hit a target or not? Did they do what God wants them to do or not? And all of that time we spend building an arrow is worth it if it goes straight and it hits its target, isn't it? So what does that verse say? They are not ashamed and they speak with the enemies in the gates. If you have a child that in his or her adult years is not ashamed of the testimony of Christ and witnesses for Christ and lives for Christ and serves the Lord, then you say, everything I put into it is worth it. Praise the Lord for that. So we win them to Christ and we send them out. So lastly, let me talk about relationships just a little bit. Protection, communication, and also counsel. In other words, even as they get older and we get older, uh, we have to continue on. Our job doesn't stop. We're, we're always parents. If you have kids, you always have kids, and you always have some kind of responsibility to them. I like this passage in 1 Corinthians 4. You can write it down. 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 16. Here's what Paul said to the Corinthians chapter 4. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. Keep that in mind, shame or warn. For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you do not have many fathers because I've begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, imitate me. Now, notice he says, you can have a lot of instructors in your life, and you know what they do? They shame you into doing right. <laughs> and, but you only have one parent or one father and one mother. And what do they do? They warn you. So you might have had a coach, for example. I had a number of different coaches in, in my life. And uh, sure enough, I mean, they'd rail on you, they'd push you, they'd yell at you, and all of this. And why? To get you to do the right thing, to push you further into your, your ability or, or whatever it is. They shame you. Uh, you might have had an employer that did that, just always getting on you and, and telling you how to do it until you could do it right. And maybe you, maybe you even had uh, a teacher that would do that. Teachers basically are shaming us by giving us a D when we think we should have gotten an A. You know, how dare they give me a D? 
because they need to shame me a little bit so that I do better. That's why. So he says, you might have had 10,000 people who shame you, but a parent is the one who warns you. And that's that word nutheo, that word to confront, and that word to push in the gentle, loving way. And you have a parent for that. And so Paul is reaching back into that, into that uh, family illustration uh, to say this is the kind of parent you need. It takes protection. You need to warn those. Why? Because I've begotten you in the gospel. The Lord also said, What man is there of you whom if his son asks bread, he will give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent? And if you being sinners, you know how to give good gifts to your children, can't the Lord give you even greater gifts? You as a father need to know how to give good gifts to your children, and that is a given also. Your heavenly father gives you greater gifts than that, and praise the Lord for that. So there's protection all the time. As our kids are growing up, we need to stay involved with that. And, and I would say, as a parent of four adult children, and, and uh, there's 11 grandkids out there, uh, I, I'm still involved in the protection and the communication and the counsel with those kids. Uh, and I'm glad that I am. I'm glad that we talk on the phone and they call me. Uh, I didn't hear from them all day until 4 o'clock this afternoon. And sure enough, all four of them start calling. They know I have church. What are they doing calling me at 4 o'clock? But you know, I spent the last hour and a half on the phone uh, with four kids, and they're in four different time zones, so who knows where they are and, you know, and where they're coming from. And they call. But praise the Lord for it. Are those things a burden to you? No. It's responsibility, and, and, and they need it, and you needed your parents until the day they died, and they need you. So there's that communication then that comes with it. I like what Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with a pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. Do you do that? Does that communication come through your prayer night and day without ceasing? And then he says, I greatly desire to see you being mindful of thy tears. You want to see your kids, don't you? You want, to, you want to be close to them. When you hear that they're hurting, you hear that there are tears in their life, you want to be there. You want to help them. That communication is important. It may be long distance, like it is for me with my kids. And if your kids live close where you can have face-to-face -face conversations, that's great. But sometimes you can be too far away and sometimes you can be too close. Uh, but you know what? Nothing is so far away these days, is it? I mean, Facebook and, or, or uh, FaceTime, I mean, and, and, and uh, the way you can communicate these days, you see them all the time. Pictures come your way more than you can handle, you know, you get of your kids and grandkids. So, you know, and if you're on Facebook, all of a sudden something pops up, some pictures from four years ago, and you go put that on your Facebook. And somebody says, oh, I saw your kids the other day. I said, well, that was four years ago, you know, and people are doing that all the time. So communication is a lot easier, but folks, do it right and, and stay in touch. And so lastly, you become the counselor, don't you? You become the ones who say, uh, this is what you need to do, son. This is what you should do. You're warning 
uh, it's not so much when, you, when your kids were little, you were the sergeant. <laughs> you get up, make your bed, sit at the table, take your hat off. You don't sit at my table with your hat off. You, you're the sergeant. You can do what you want. But all of a sudden, they're 40 years old, and <laughs> you're not the sergeant anymore. Sorry, you're the counselor. But you know what? That's what you need to be. That's what they need in their life right now. And so you have to be that all of your life. Peter said it this way, For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know them and you're established in truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent, in this body, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tent, Peter says, as the Lord has showed me. And then he says, moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. When I'm gone, and I'm not here to say it anymore, I want these things in your head. I want these things to remind you. So, uh, Peter and, and, of course, all of the apostles and good people said, I want you, I want you to remember these things. I, I was saying this morning, in this morning's message, don't, don't you hear the voice of your dad in some, and you go to do something and you hear your dad say this and your mom used to say this. And I, I remember being, a, 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 what, a too proud of a teenager in high school when my mom was the teacher and she loved those kids. She loved those high school kids. And uh, she took me aside one time because I think she saw me kind of ignoring somebody. And you know what her words were? It's hard to love the unlovely, isn't it? My mom said that to me in the hallway of the school. It's hard to love the unlovely, isn't it? And you know what? I'm 72 years old, and I'm quoting that to you now. Because <laughs> those words have been with me all of my life. Who am I? Uh, to not love whom God loves for whatever crazy reasons a person has. So uh, that's where we are. So let me bring this to a close real quickly. I've spoken about three things. I've spoken about us as people. We are God's creatures. We are made in his image. Secondly, I've spoken about marriage. That is God's covenant between a man, a woman, and God. And that is important. And now we're talking about the family, which I think is the most important institution on earth, for filling the earth, for stabilizing nations, for evangelizing the world, and for glorifying God. We need this family. Stand with me, if you will. As we think about these things, we'll pray. We'll sing a song in just a moment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to uh, speak to our hearts and minds the way that we need tonight. Father, thank you for the family. We're all here because of mothers and fathers. Whether they were faithful to you or not, we're here, and we're in your image, and we have responsibility. And so, Father, no matter where we are in our life and in our trek, young or old, experienced or not, help us, Father, to do the right thing right now with what we have to do so that you can bless our marriages, you can bless our children and our grandchildren for generations to come. Help us to be a faithful people in this in this time that we live, this, this time that is dangerous, this time that is immoral and immodest, uh, uh, Father, help us to uh, honor you and glorify you in our homes and in our families. So speak to our hearts in the way that we need tonight. Draw us to yourself in the way that we need. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ken's going to come and lead us in a song.